Hey there, our guest this time is Cheryl Platts, one of many talents, including UX researcher, voice UI designer, author, teacher, and actor, too. We discuss the intersection of artificial intelligence and UX research. As I'm sure you've heard by now, AI is a thing. There's been a lot of conversation in our community about its potential impact, practical applications, and more. Our chat covers the whole spectrum of topics, from demystifying what AI actually is, how it works, and where it can accelerate what UX researchers do today. Of course, we had to ask Cheryl about the ethical implications of using AI tools and whether or not AI will replace the critical role of a human in UX research, as well as what that role is for humans to play in the future of insights in general. Things are moving so fast with the development of AI tools that by the time this episode launches, there may even be more to cover. That said, you're going to take away some nuggets from this conversation to consider as the landscape of UX research changes. All right, let's get into it. All right, I am here with Cheryl Platts. How's it going? It's going great. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I am very happy to have you on. I was uh, excited that you were able to join us. <clears throat> you got a lot going on. Uh, but some of the stuff that you were talking about recently, I thought would be really great discussion discussion topics uh, as an episode of our podcast. And uh, you know, you and I have chatted in the past and I've always enjoyed it. Uh, so I just thought everything everything about it would work. Yes. And, and I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to come together. It has been very spicy out there in the, the UX world. And uh, I've been, uh, it got me out of my uh, writing slumber. Uh, my medium blog is spiced back up. So yeah, it's a good time to talk. Awesome. So before we actually jump into any really meaty topics, I usually like to ask for you to talk a little bit about your background, introduce yourself for folks who maybe haven't heard of you or, or, or heard of your work yet. Absolutely. Uh, so to those I haven't met, hi, I am Cheryl Platts. I am uh, a, a many-sided woman. I'm a user experience designer. I am a teacher, author, actress, I, gamer, game designer, uh, Pokemon trainer, goes on, lots of things. Uh, I'm the author of uh, Design Beyond Devices, Creating Multimodal Cross-Device Experiences, which was published by Rosenfeld Media, uh, and is uh, a Kind of the way I describe it to folks who have never encountered that book before is it's the annual for folks who aspire to design the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Uh, so, the, you know, when you think about people trying to coordinate experiences across uh, different modalities, you're talking to the computer, you're projecting experiences onto multiple screens, you're using physical controls. It all looks very easy on TV, but uh, that's from experience, having worked at the companies I've worked at, that's very hard under the hood. Uh, my previous employers have included places like uh, Microsoft, where I worked on everything from uh, server technology to Cortana. I worked on uh, Alexa in the early days. I designed the Alexa notification system. I did. Uh, I also w worked on the Echo Look, the uh, short-lived uh, clueless closet that had Alexa <laughs> enabled. Uh, I've worked on a number of video games, and I'm currently a uh, director of. User experience for a large video game company. Although today I speak on my own, 
And I am also owner of IdeaPlatz, a design education company through which I've traveled the world talking, sort of sharing my skills as a voice user interface designer or a uh, new product designer and uh, sharing talks about uh, design ethics, all kinds of things. I'm really passionate about engaging with the community and helping folks wrestle with the future of design because I remember what it was like being locked in a literal closet at Amazon working on a new product and there were only four of us who knew what it was who knew what the project was and i kind of resolved then i wanted to help other designers <laughs> figure out what was how to work on new things like ai and uh hardware and uh all of, all of those sorts of sorts of experiences because you know, it was a lot to deal with that is uh definitely interesting and maybe <laughs> to dive into another time as to why you're in a literal closet uh, <laughs> But in your illustrious introduction, you mentioned something that I think would be really useful to dive into this, this topic of AI, which is really what I was hoping to discuss with you. You know, AI is very hot right now, so to speak. It's looking to be applied across many different industries and platforms. Now, as UX researchers, people in UX, I think the topic naturally starts to slide into well, what does that mean for UX research? What does it mean for UX? And I think a really good place to start, honestly, is to just say, when we talk about AI, what are we actually talking about? It's a great question. And I can see like the unease and the the fear sometimes. It's been a rough couple of months. I just want to acknowledge that ever since November 2022, those some of us have been working with the concept of AI for a long time. Uh, but all of us have had a wild ride since last year. Uh, it the speed at which this technology has accelerated has caught everybody a little off guard. But to the core question, what is AI? What is artificial intelligence? The public perceives it as a monolith. It is uh, it, artificial intelligence is an all-knowing thing that uh, can make decisions and is smart and uh, discerning. In reality, what we have today, uh, artificial intelligence is a blanket term that typically ends up referring to systems that are a series of services held together, sometimes by duct tape, uh, that are powered by what we call machine learning in most cases. Most cases, not always. Um, and machine learning is a uh, is a phenomenon where we take typically large amounts of data and feed it to essentially. Let's just use. I'm probably going to use a lot of analogies and metaphors and such today, but. Love it. A, a baby, a baby algorithm, so to speak. We feed a lot of data to a baby algorithm, and the baby algorithm looks at this large amount of data and starts to learn patterns. And um, we also teach that baby algorithm what to do about those patterns. You know, uh, on the TV show Silicon Valley, there was a hot dog or not, I think, app, or if I'm remembering correctly, is it a hot so dog? I think is what it. Yeah, hot dog. Or not. <laughs> Uh, and so you, you take the baby algorithm, you show it a lot of photos, and you you tell it, this is a hot dog. This is not a hot dog. This is a hot dog. This is not a hot dog. And over time, it learns by watching you, and it's able to take the next photo <clears throat> and say, that is a hot dog. Pretty sure. Mm -hmm. it's And 
at its core, that's machine learning. And what's interesting about it is you show the uh, this this algorithm, this model, we call it the baby algorithm once it's got all that training. Um, you show it all this data so that it can handle the next piece of data, which we do not know. It's to give it the ability to handle an unexpected piece of stimuli. It's just like training a kid to go off into the real world. We don't know what's going to happen when they go out uh, on their first date or they go off to their first job, but you teach them, you you put them in school, you teach them stuff and you hope it's going to go well, but you know, so you, you, do, you do your best. Um, but the algorithm is usually guessing. It's it, because rarely what do, if it was an easy problem, if it were, you know, black or white, you know, if it was, is binary, we would just write an algorithm to binarily determine something. Mm -hmm. Usually when we use machine learning, it's because it's squishy. And yeah. so the machine learning algorithm is, is guessing and it has some sort of confidence that it was correct, but they can get things wrong. Sure. And the, the likelihood that they get things wrong is often controlled a lot by the quality of the data you showed to it. So when we get to like, hey, what school did you go to? What uh, uh, what textbooks did you have when you're raising a kid? Uh, that can influence what facts you know, um, how how good you are at a particular subject. And the same thing's true for these, these AI, uh, uh, these artificial intelligence machine learning models. Um, and that's where we get into a lot of the controversy. Um, where did the data come from? Yeah. So I really actually love the analogy of like a child learning and growing because I, I think it is very similar based on the understanding I have on it in full disclosure. I am not an expert in this for sure, for sure. Um, but that being said, you know, to kind of summarize a little bit of your answer to the question, I would say, you know, it's not Jarvis in Iron Man suit, right? Like people imagine it might be. Um, it is learning and, you know, arguably, despite how impressive it is, uh, it is still in its sort of infancy stages at this at this point. Yes. And there's different types of models, too. So Jarvis, to your point, if we were to make something that seems like Jarvis, because we we have Alexa and people be like, wait, wait, wait. Hey, you worked on Alexa. Don't tell me that this doesn't exist. I'm like, fair, fair. Uh, but having worked on Alexa back to the duct tape analogy it is a bucket of like uh, individual systems there is a text to speech service that renders her voice mm -hmm. there uh, is a service that handles uh, music requests there is a service that handles weather requests there is a service that handles uh, you know uh, the all like timers and reminders and things and so and then there's a layer of what we call natural language understanding uh, and there's, uh, and you know, there's a language of, there's two layers of language processing. One, which just tries to t turn your voice into our first guess at words. And then a second layer, which is like, what did they mean by the words? So by the time your stuff is processed, you're, you're, you know, and there's some protections to make sure all of your speech doesn't go to the cloud because it's very expensive to, uh, send things to the cloud, uh, but the wake word, there's there's local technology to keep your text from going to the cloud. If it hears the wake word, uh, we they there's a service that determines 
What did what words do we think they said? Another services says, what did she mean when she said play Pirates of the Caribbean? Was it the music or was it the movie? And then another service that's that handles the like, she meant play the movie. So go do that. Mm -hmm. um, and that one that says, what did she mean? That one is like the secret sauce where uh, there was a ton of training. Uh, watching a bunch of people, like giving it a bunch of examples. Um, and that's the one where we have the biggest example of that confidence where it's like, I'm 80% sure she wants the movie. 20% sure she wants the soundtrack, but 80% is pretty good. So I'm going to give her the movie. Mm -hmm. And in that example, we could give that algorithm, that AI piece context to help make that decision. Like if I'm on a fire TV, way less likely I'm going to ask for the mu music. Mm -hmm. So that could influence why it's making that decision. But, you know, so yes, AI as a concept, as a monolith in its, in its infancy, individual models, not in infancy, some of them are actually pretty sophisticated and uh, powerful. Uh, the, the concept of like one big monolith just knowing everything is not true. And uh, some I, like I'm surprised even inside companies, sometimes people sort of buy their own hype and they're like, and it'll just know the thing. I'm like, who's building the service that teaches it the weather. We have to give it the data somehow. Yeah. Um, so there's that that distinction. But we do have this incredible capability now, accelerated since November 2022, to give a baby algorithm a bunch of data and have it start spitting out art, uh, that which is hugely advanced from where we were like a year or two ago. Yeah, for sure. And I really appreciate the fact that you broke it down to say there's there's more than one flavor of AI. AI is not just this, it is a singular technology that you plug into whatever and it just takes over and it does all these things. There's there's applications to this, just like there are different applications you maybe have in your job or in your life. Like you said, one that plays music, one that plays movies, one that you can write with, things like that. You know, so uh there's there's all these different applications. One of the things that you said sort of way early on uh in in starting this conversation was that it's typically used for stuff that's squishy because otherwise you just write a program for that which are all over the place we use every single day so really what's the distinction there what do you mean when you say it's used for stuff that's squishy yes a technical term i'm sure all of my ai specialist friends are like well i hate that hate that because <laughs> when when i like my uh you, writing my ai chapter in my book uh design beyond devices was uh, that was the chapter that i spent the most time on actually because it was so important that i got what i did say right mm. uh, and uh you know the friends i did work with on like making sure i got it right you know very detailed because it is it's it's so easy to get some of these pieces wrong um and there is a lot of sensitivity in the community too about um metaphor because i think the skynet thing has caused a lot of folks to sort of bounce off the concept of artificial intelligence without learning the details which is harmful i think uh and harmful both for folks who want people to understand their work and harmful for the public where we really need them right now to start understanding a little bit more about the stuff under the hood so they can question companies but what is squishy uh squishy is stuff we can't predict stuff is squishy is stuff that is contextual uh that that needs to take into consideration a lot of factors uh you know typical things are predicting uh, 
you know, predicting what your next destination is based on a lot of factors in your general behavior. Maybe that's something we could train a model to do. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of a lot of situations in healthcare squishy. You know, there's a does this X-ray contain cancer? It's mm. very squishy. Uh, as it, you know, there's a lot of judgment calls in there, uh, and. If it were easy, that's the problem we would have solved. Like there's so, but there's this hypothesis that, hey, maybe there are factors that like maybe we're not perceiving. So what if we what if we just took the baby algorithm and said, here are all the X-rays where we found cancer, and here are all the X-rays where we didn't find this type of cancer. Not all cancers, but like you you have to focus on like a really specific one, lung cancer sure. or something or melanoma, and do you see anything? Uh, what is the next, like this picture, does it contain lung cancer? And see what it comes up with. And there have been experiences where where folks have done this. Now, the challenge is uh, in these cases, and I, I off the top of my head, I don't have like the study in front of me, but I, like I, there have been cases where they do this and they have unexpected consequences where it's like, it's making inferences based on conditions around the set of x-rays mm. like it's getting false positives uh because it was uh, other things that were happening in the x-rays it's hard to say but like the, the the results weren't as accurate as they wanted them to be because of other factors and that was hard for them to pull out and this is one of the biggest problems with this squishiness and the way the models work right now is when you teach the baby model and you show it all the things it doesn't write down why it thinks something is true mm. it doesn't and uh so you can't if if i say like i teach i show it the pictures of the hot dogs and not hot dogs uh and it i showed a picture and i'm like is this a hot dog it says yes or no it says no and i think it looks like a hot dog and i say why don't you think this looks like a hot dog it's like i don't <laughs> That's it. That's no. all. It's, it's yeah. No, <laughs> like there's no, there's no. It doesn't have a set of rules it wrote down. It's just statistics. You like it's like probability. It's uh, like uh, you know, depending on the type of model it is, it's like comparing pixels or pixel relationships or something. Most of the time, mm -hmm. people there are researchers who are trying to get more sophisticated and get AI models to write down the rules that they're coming up with but that's really complicated now we're trying to get into like something that resembles human reasoning like that that's write down the reasons you think that this is true like that's that's really hard uh but so these squishy problems like pulling in context um a lot of times ai is used to take big set of data and find correlations when we don't necessarily have causation like you usually go to this point, you usually go to this place at 3 p.m. on Tuesdays. We don't know why, yeah. but I'm going to give you the estimated time to departure. Right. Happens to me all the time. I get in my car at a certain time. It's it recognizes a pattern. Mm -hmm. It says I, this pattern. It's going to take you this long to get to this destination because I think that's probably where you're going. Yeah. And that's why, like, when you talk to some AI folks, they're like, we're so far off because it, it has the system hasn't connected that to like intent or reason. But that doesn't mean the system can't cause harm mm -hmm. just because it doesn't know why you're not doing that. Like the way it interprets that cluster of data can still cause harm if it's the it, like if they interpret it incorrectly and it's a cancer algorithm can 
still cause harm. If it's interpreting a cluster of data and it's it's interpreting it based on to figure out whether or not you're likely to commit a crime, that can really cause harm. Uh, yeah, and I that's about that. <laughs> it had some pretty interesting scenes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um okay, so awesome background to just what it is that we're even talking about this hand wavy thing of AI. Well, we work in UX. You know, we work in UX research. And there's massive debate. And I mean like across the entire spectrum of it's going to be our savior to it will never replace anything that we do and everything in between. I'm sure you've seen a lot of this and I'm sure that's what probably inspired you to, to, to talk and write a lot more about this recently. Where to begin? You know, yeah. uh, what really is, I guess maybe the, the right question is what impact have you seen AI having on UX research today? And then let's well, talk about where we go from there. I mean, the biggest stuff I've seen has been on that like direct application of type specific types of models for the raw processing of data. Mm. You know, back when I was at the Gates Foundation and doing large amounts of video-based research, uh, the ability when, you know, I ended up going into tools and they were able to uh, take my video, auto-code, uh, like uh, auto-process all the text because I was like hand transcribing because I'm a big one on like full context and detail and people like you're you're literally just wow you're like yeah i know but i get so much from it but that finding a tool that could support just full natural language transcription but not only that but like tie each word to a point in the timeline of the video so that i could scrub and clip uh and you know uh and then connect those words so that you could do searches on like tag tag clouds and things like that uh, and and uh could run cluster analysis on the uh the frequency of, of appearance of words in a study those things start to be you know that's uh those those things are you know maybe not the big ai you're picturing when you look at when you look at what's in the market today but those are applications of machine learning in many mm-hmm. cases um now what we're not what i did not see at that time was like the recommendations kind of engine like hey you need it you need this tag like that that stuff was still kind of left up to me um and i it, because i'm now in like a leadership role the last year or two i it's possible that stuff's out there and i'm not playing with it like that's where i think like the next evolution might be is like hey uh based on the way other people have tagged data like this, we mm. think you probably have a, da- a tag around productivity and a tag around uh, collaboration mm-hmm. and a tag around uh, like crashes or something. Uh, but as a researcher, you can already probably feel the unease with that. You're like, well, how do I trust it? Is it, is it right? Is it real? Um, and and that gets down to one of the biggest sort of f- philosophical challenges around how we should use AI when it comes to these the aid of humans doing their work. Uh, Microsoft's AI principles were very much that like you should use AI, you should leave agency in the hands of the person. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what what you would in their perspective and that may have changed but while i was there anyway uh, in their perspective you wouldn't just 
tag the thing and say the tagging's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would say like, these are our suggested tags. Maybe you should review them right. uh, and make and make it easy to make changes because uh, acknowledging that the human's always going to be at the center of the work. And I, you know, I haven't had a chance to use Copilot yet, but I'm hoping that whatever they do with Copilot, that's going to be their uh, approach. And you saw that kind of like with their smart advisor in PowerPoint. Uh, there was a little bit of that kind of thing going on there where it wasn't like, I'm just going to pop your slides. And it's like, uh, these slides seem like they might be helpful. I don't know. Uh, yeah. So I think I, I certainly obviously uh, encoded in my responses, I think, tagging is a place where we spend a lot of time, you know, uh, like analyzing clips, looking for the places of most interest. And so like sentiment analysis, tagging, finding places of most interest, uh, clipping, you know, auto clipping and like uh, doing, doing excerpt reels and things like that. Those are places where potentially uh, you could over time train one of these, and I'm going to just keep using the analogy, the baby model um, to uh, get, get good at, identifying where people's emotions are heightened and uh then say like ah this seems like an interesting point of the video so i'm gonna i'm gonna make it easier to get to this point uh or understand uh well these clusters of words mean this tag so i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna tag this segment so it's easier for my researcher to go and find this later yeah. uh, or uh, or if i've clipped some stuff get good at like creating excerpt reels based on clips and, and things to, to help me with that. Now, the question there is, how do we train the baby model ethically? Because hmm. all of us have NDAs and participant, uh, you know, agreements. And this, this model has to learn somehow. And I don't believe those NDAs are are like the old Z the Zoom NDA thing that just went out where it's like we have an un we have an irrevocable irrevocable license to use your likeness in perpetuity to do whatever we want including train our AI. We probably had pretty well scoped NDAs where we're going to use your research content to do the research we're telling you and then we're going to delete it. So in those cases uh that data shouldn't be used for training the models. And so for a, to train these baby UX research models, it, it starts out, you're like, oh yeah, it's going to be super easy, barely an inconvenience. Great. But in reality, it's an ethical problem mm -hmm. because uh, whatever companies are doing these models, uh, they're either going to have to generate a bunch of fake data or they're going to have to convince their customers to allow their customers get their customers to agree to have their data, data scraped. Uh, well, scraping is the wrong term because it's consensual, but um, it's the term that's coming up in the news. But like their data used uh, and analyzed, uh, shared with this model and processed. Um, and that's really tough. So that's the trick. That's the tricky part there, I think, for UX research when it comes to like tools and things like that. The other thing I've seen, I know there was a big burst of uh, energy around uh, one or two tools that popped up where synthetic customers were generated. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much time I need to spend on that. Uh, I don't, cause I don't know. I don't know how many folks were, were thinking of that as like a viable output, but um, you know, it cuts back to the whole personas versus user, user profiles debate uh, that sometimes, like, I feel like every company I've gone to, there's been like a religious debate about personas. I don't know if you've encountered this. And, I absolutely you know, have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and it's core, like personas themselves 
are not the problem. It's the over-fictionalization of personas, right? Like if a persona is based on real data and it's conveying real data with the mental model that is easier for our partners to understand, great. But what usually happens is people don't want to do the hard part, which is going and talk, talking to people and correlating data. So they just create Anna, who is a soccer mom who wants to drive uh, and loves Taylor Swift. And the, why did and, I know you were going to Taylor Swift? For some reason, I just knew it was happening. She, and but I mean, it's like yeah, they 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 yeah. pick things because they think it's connected to like to public events or something. They've heard like they're like that's user research. I'm really connected to people. Like that's but that's not actually. Of what we do, right? And so it's it's. Uh, I, I would absolutely think that there's probably a raft of personas right now that are absolutely T Swift Swifties. But yeah. is it research? Are their customers Swifties, or are they just pulling from uh, the ether? Uh, so these these tools, which are like, yeah, we'll we'll generate customers for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not a lot different than just listening to the news and picking some random uh, stuff and plopping it down on a persona. And so, sure, if if you literally have no one you can talk to that you can confirm is actually in your pool, I can't tell you that that's not better than zero, but there's nothing to guarantee that that fictional story is actually aligned with the customers you're going to use. And when if if you buy the hype and you tell yourself those are your customers, you can cause actual harm mm -hmm. if you don't think about who you're excluding or the things it's not seeing. Uh, and that's my concern it, with those sorts of tools. Uh, like I talk a lot in my book about like uh, optipessimism, what's the worst consequence of success uh, and how do you deal with it? Like, who do you exclude? I talk about like the PICS framework for like evaluating the impact of your work. And so it's... Um, the type of mindset that gets us to like, well, I'm not going to talk to actual people. I'm going to like, look at these fictional frameworks of people. There's so much, so much out there where you could actually talk to people uh, that there's so many people in the world. There's billions of them. It feels weird to generate fake ones. Yeah. Just because I can doesn't mean I should. Exact. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the Jurassic Park quote. I use that. So you see, you've read. Yeah, you, I, I use that all the time. Ian Malcolm, it's like. Yeah. Right there. Yeah, I love it. So the thing is, what I hear you saying is it sounds like there's good news and there's bad news for UX researchers in the advent of AI. You know, on one end of this, uh, there is an absolutely ethical challenge that we need to address one way or another <laughs> it's going to get addressed hopefully uh on the right side right of things uh but then you know the on the other end of it we've got some good news which actually suggests there's a lot of work that we do today that this can just help us do faster one of the things that i like which by the way uh very strongly agree with and you know having not worked directly in ai like you did in past roles uh i still have always shared this sentiment of this artificial intelligence, this, this natural language processing, this machine learning, this stuff really should take us to the edge of decision. Like you, you called it agency or, or maybe Microsoft's sort of philosophy on this was that the agency should stay with the person. And I really agree with that. I don't think that anybody should go into here expecting the AI is going to take their job. I've heard a lot of that. Uh, and it, it seems kind of crazy to me, but it's worth talking about because people believe this. I don't think AI is taking anybody's job, not if you're doing your job well. So to your point, if you're making up personas, for example, 
Well, yeah, AI, AI can do that. It can make up personas, right? Uh, but what it can't do, and you talked a lot about this earlier, it can't bring the context that you have at your company about your products with people building them and combine that with data, uh, research data. You do that. So really what I, you know, what I see AI being able to do is help you get to those points faster where you can then work with those people, helping them understand the crunching of that data in that context, because that's where your real value is. Yeah, I love the phrase edge of decision. I'm going to borrow that. Uh, it's really great. Free um, charge. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, I, it is tough. The the are the uh, is are the bots coming for the jobs question? Because um, in many industries they they are, and we have to to co like face that head on. And this one is interesting because like our can can AI do exactly what UX researchers do? No. Does that mean that executives aren't going to try to tell themselves uh, that they can? Uh, no. So it's it's tough. And and so I think there is this challenge. How might we take advantage of the tools that are available to amplify our impact to help us weather the next round of layoffs? Because I know UXR got hit harder than uh, like it, it, past layoff rounds, possibly even harder than like proportionally than UX design got hit. Uh, and, you know, I, I used to in past layoff rounds look and be like, UX research is usually pretty good because we always need to know about our customers. But this round of layoffs, that did not seem to be the case. Um, and so it, it is a question of like, how do we, we're going to, you know, our ratios are off again we were making progress and we're going to have to it, like impact larger orgs as researchers. And so how do we use these tools to help us do that? Say, you know, as humanely. And if that's using uh, tools that help us uh, transcribe and, and tag uh, more efficiently, if that's uh, using better data analysis tools uh, or, or projection tools or things like that, um, I think that's that's important. Uh, the more we can show this 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 kind of value, uh, the the more resilient our UXR effort as a whole becomes. And I think that's that's a lot of it. I, I think it's absolutely possible that in in cost cutting environments, people are like, especially if you're working on a live service. It's one thing if you're working on a new product. It's hard for an executive to be like, an AI could tell me what I need to know. Like you haven't launched yet. Right. But once you have live data. It is absolutely possible for an executive to be like, I can find an AI which will run analysis of my live data and we will figure it out. I don't need you to tell me about my customers. Um, it is possible. And so the more we can get creative about using these tools to amplify our impact or both either amplify the types of impact we have or amplify how we communicate our impact. Like that was what I liked about some of the tools I used in the past was like, it was trying to start changing the way we communicate, use research and build on it. Mm. Um, how do we like codify insights and then snowball them so that they don't just kind of get discarded. You know, I saw so many efforts to build research repositories at Microsoft come and go and come and go. Cause it's a really hard problem. Sure. Uh, but I, it's not even necessarily an AI problem, but the more you have insights at scale, the more it could be like, it looks like this work you're doing relates to this work someone else did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the whole thing, I'm reminded of a conversation I had recently where people were talking about the role of UX research or really any role. If you think about how a team in a company grows, so Microsoft is huge. It's very long past a startup or a growth phase, right? Like, but the fact still remains that when you're hiring a role at any company, someone is outsourcing a part of their job. And that's what's happening with UX research, right? Like everybody gets the value of understanding customers. So even if they're outsource, you know, outsourcing that part of the job to AI, there's still somebody that has to do something with that work. And there is a role for UX researchers as people, actual human beings to play in that. And I think I would argue uh, that A, that's still very necessary. So even if you do have an executive that says an AI can do that, it's like, yes, but do you have time to work with the AI? The answer is probably no, because you're outsourcing that part of your job, right? Uh, So in that, what I'm suggesting is I think for the future of UX researchers specifically, I think that it's really important to focus on that. You know, how do we use that to augment what we do rather than resisting against it? It is going to become part of our job, whether we want it to be or not. And I think it's really important to just take a look at how we use that to, you know, in your words, amplify what we do. Leaning on the spirit of like Sam Ladner's mixed methods and things like that. Like you could have a data scientist who's doing only that, but we could be a bit more holistic, take uh, take our look at the data and combine it with other things uh, and bring a much more business connected set of and human connected set of insights. So I think those things, those things are and can be true. I think another interesting possibility for the industry, and I don't know how this manifests, but like there's so much potential insight about how humans work and that like in the academic world and in the publicly published world, like Niels Norman and stuff that like, you know, think about if we go back to the tagging case, when, when I'm talking to people, it's possible that if we did have a system where I've had my videos processed, it's tagging things, that system could also help bring other relevant research to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that that's one thing I at least have observed in corporate environments. Rarely do corporate folks have the time to go pull external knowledge to them. Uh, it's just there. So everybody just ends up reinventing the wheel all the time. They're like, whatever our customers tell us is real. That much is true. But am I like, am I going to go do a big paper search to see whether or not that because I know when we worked on Windows Automotive, we put, published white papers about like what the best minimum size of text or uh, touch targets were that we validated in like in car studies and things. Because, but like, did anybody else ever see those things? I don't know, because there's no good method for it. And, and usually people are stressed and have time. But I could see a system like that where um, it's not so much that the the AI is telling us how to do the work, but the AI might be able to pull an extra context, a lot like uh, PowerPoints giving us slide suggestions. And that really could amplify our work. It could shortcut us. It could get us to better recommendations. It could take what we think is a small signal from a study and turn it into a really big signal like, oh, this seems interesting and say like, actually hundreds of thousands of people have had this problem. This is just the first time you've seen it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I love that. I love that. I think just to continue to add to that completely agree where when I say that edge of decision, a decision still has to be made in 
I don't believe, certainly not now, and maybe not even in the interim future, that these AI type tools will make a decision for you. And it certainly isn't one that you're going to want to take a whole lot of confidence in. That's the role you still play as a UX researcher, in my opinion, right? So yes, use these to help you get to that point where you can help somebody interpret that. Okay, this happened 100,000 times. Is that good? Is it bad? What do we do about it? It's the whole thing where, you know, there's still a lot of conversation around is quant or qual better? And the answer is yes. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> right? Like quant is awesome. To, and to again, to use your language as a signal. Then you use qual to sort of paint the broader picture and say, well, here's why this is, here's why we're seeing that. And then you talk about what you do about it. Exactly. You know, I think these things can bring us to those much faster. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, Especially faster can be good. If it's thoughtful faster, that's great because we all know how difficult it can be to operate in the environments we're in, especially when in the context of downsizing and uh, locked budgets. And I know how hard it is. Our our research team does so much with so little. Being fast and smart is a great aspiration if we can figure out a way to use these technologies ethically but intelligently yeah and in addition to that, the fast and smart is yeah i i think really simply but well said and with regard to this because then what can happen is maybe there's a lot of companies that can't can't be fast and smart because of resources now but this actually levels that playing field so if you take that one step further maybe everybody can start to be faster and smarter well that means everything kind of gets a little bit better and by the way that means everybody will kind of need at least a UX researcher. There's a lot of places that have none today, right? And so even one person in that role, helping them be faster, smarter, because that person can be amplified to what may have, you know, taken a team of five in the past. I actually see those as good things. You start to, it broadens the field and it can apply to a lot more places that maybe UX research you know, doesn't even touch today. So I love this conversation, obviously, uh, but we got to be respectful of your time. And I see we're kind of running out of that. Um, one of the things that I like to do when, I, when we wrap up each episode is I ask the person I'm talking with, if I were to develop temporary amnesia, forgot everything we talked about, somebody came to you and said, Cheryl, what was that episode all about? How would you summarize it for folks listening? Today, we were talking about the power of artificial intelligence and its impact on the user research community. But we started at the very basic. What is artificial intelligence? Uh, what's What are some mental models you can use to understand the difference between the big, scary artificial intelligence and what's actually going on under the hood? Uh, and once you have that understanding, we took that all the way to uh, what might the future hold and how... Uh, we, how you might use these technologies to amplify the work of user researchers moving forward. Love it. Love it. Before we jump off, uh, I can imagine there's folks that are probably going to listen to this, want to continue conversation, find out more about your work and things like that. How can folks find you, reach out to you, learn more about your books and things like that? Thank you for asking. Uh, I, I am on 
the scattered socials. Uh, it's a difficult time out there. Uh, you can always find uh, you find me at CherylPlatz.com and all of my stuff is collated there. Uh, my book, Design Beyond Devices, Creating Multimodal Cross-Device Experiences, covers a lot of the topics we talked about today from uh, seeking additional context about uh, about your customers if in a world where you're doing AI work or uh, you know cross-device work to uh, the frameworks like uh, Optipessimism and Picks and the chapter about AI and core concepts there. Uh, that's available at all online booksellers and uh, also at rosenfeldmedia.com where you can get the f- digital copy for free if you order the print copy. Uh, so, uh, and all those links are on my website, shelledplatz.com, of course. Uh, you can also go to ideaplatz.com, which is my design education company. There you can see uh, a selection of the workshops and talks I offer. Uh, if you'd like me to speak at your conference uh, or teach uh, at your conference, I'm always happy to talk. Uh, uh, obviously, talking is a, a fun thing for me, and I loved this conversation. Uh, as far as socials are concerned, I, uh, I'm i I'm either Funny Godmother or the Cheryl Platts, depending on the platform. Uh, I picked the funny. I picked Funny Godmother, and it turns out some platforms uh, take God and then just don't allow usernames <laughs> with that. And so that uh, <clears throat> and it was already a rebrand for me, so I didn't like want to like re rebrand. So I'm like, fine, 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 fine. So. On like Instagram and uh, Twitter and Blue Sky and Mastodon is fun and Twitch it's like and YouTube is Funny Godmother on TikTok and uh, like a couple others it's it's the Cheryl Platts but yeah you know those uh, you you can probably find me on the platform you're on totally well and we're gonna have a lot of those links in the show notes for anybody listening go ahead and jump over to uh, our blog where it's gonna be posted we'll have all the links for that stuff too. Cheryl, just have to say thank you again for taking the time. Really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, I'm I'm sure everybody else will as well. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope I'm wishing all the best out there to everybody. I hope that your research contains lots of fun and um, really exciting surprises for you in the next few months. Awesome. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the platform designed to help you gather research data, make sense of it fast, and turn it into insights and action. It's a central place to search and share all of your research data and insights. You can try Aurelius for free with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a review on iTunes and let others know. You'll find all the links and resources to each episode on the show notes at blog.aureliuslab.com. Catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast almost anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for our email updates on our website.